When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Violin Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Brugala, where I have conversations with violinists from around the world. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. If you're new to us, please make sure to hit the subscribe button and hit the notification bell so that way you get notified for when new episodes come out. It also helps out The Violin Podcast to provide more episodes for you. Today, we have a real treat for all our listeners today. In today's episode, we are going to be interviewing Angelo Zhang Yu, who is the recently appointed violinist of the Shanghai String Quartet. Really had a blast talking to him. We talked about uh, the recent menuing competition results because he was a juror and a lot of great um, insight into how he was thinking as a juror in a, in a COVID world and how he had to do the process of watching and listening to all the participants of the menuing competition. So please be sure to tune in to the end of the episode because you really don't want to miss this. Also, just a couple of housekeeping things. If you're not signed up for our mailing list, please make sure that you're signed up for our email newsletter because a lot of cool things are happening, especially for the beginner violinists who are listening to the Violin Podcast. There may be a free product for you in the future, so you definitely want to be signed up for that so that way you have access to that. Also, I'd like to thank today's sponsor of the Violin Podcast episode, and that is Soundbrenner. Soundbrenner is bringing modern technology and design to instrumentalists, and they aim to help every musician on the planet to master their craft. Um, it's their goal to inspire the world to embark on a really epic journey for musical greatness, and they celebrate all those who are already in pursuit of it, and they make a lot of great metronome products. I, as I said before on the Violin Podcast, I'm a huge believer in the metronome app that they have. It's really, really great. And I'm happy to give all my listeners a 20% off discount for all Soundbrenner products, which is really unheard of. It's, you know, usually I give like 10% off or 5% off products on the Violin Podcast. But in this episode, and for a limited time only for two weeks, 20% off by using the code Eric. So E-R-I-C-2-0. That is the promo code for the Soundbrenner. Now, it is my pleasure to introduce to you Angelo Zhang Yu from the Shanghai Quartet. Ladies and gentlemen, I have Angelo Zhang Yu with me today on the Violin Podcast. And uh, before we begin, I just want to reminisce the moment where I actually saw you performing live at New England Conservatory because you're doing a, you know, a massive program of like Beethoven, uh, Kreutzer Sonata, and you did some Sarasate, and it blew me away. I think I was listening to that recording of your recital maybe weeks after because I was so inspired. Made me want to practice because I was, I was a student back then, so it was um, really inspiring. But Thank you. Thank yeah, you. How, that was a long time ago. <laughs> it was, it was co- yeah, it was quite a bit of a go. Like, what was it 2012, 2013, was it? 2013, like probably, yeah. Yeah, and back then when you did that recital, were you doing more your um, your master's degree or were you doing your artistic diploma? I, I was an uh, artist diploma because uh, normally you would 
probably get a master degree and then you pursue a artist diploma because it's more of a higher performance level because they only accept um, one student per year or sometimes they don't um, accept anybody. So there was a very kind of like a prestigious program. So I was very lucky to be selected as one of them. So um, as a result, you get to play um, twice in Jordan Hall. And then sometimes you get to play at the Boston Symphony, which I was lucky enough to, to do that. So yeah, that was a while ago. I can't believe it's like eight years ago or something. And uh, I'm glad you still remember <laughs> one thing or two about that recital. I do remember. Yeah, I think there were like three encores <laughs> in that performance, well, I believe. Yeah, I <laughs> they were, but they were all fantastic. I mean, so I would love to talk to you about um, because you are a soloist, right? And I would love to talk to you about how you decide your repertoire for a program. What what goes into the process of evaluating? Okay, this is the music I want to perform. How do I organize it? How do I manage all of this? Could you explain that to the audience real quick? Sure. I mean, it's always hard for us as performers to decide a program because there are so many factors you have to take into consideration. Uh, sometimes you have to consider, you know, what kind of audience group we are facing, you know, um, different city, they have different tastes and different country, different region. And that's number one. Number two, I think it's more of a balance. So uh, maybe something I would like to perform, I enjoy performing may not be necessarily uh, you know, the, the audience favorites, you know, and sometimes, um, you know, audience like to have show pieces, obviously, but uh, if I give a recital that has 10 show pieces, you know, I would be miserable. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, so I think it's, it's all about balancing. Uh, I think you have to have different, you know, style variety. And I think that's number two and number three. And also most importantly is I always wanted to have like a theme, like a basic theme. Um, you know, for example, if you want to have a French theme, if you want to have like a conversation, you know, sometimes I, I could even have like a complete Baroque in the first half and a complete modern in the second half, but they're somehow correlated. And some, sometimes I feel like even Bach is so close related to jazz, you know, and the rhythm. And so I think uh, I always wanted to have a theme. And uh, I think that is probably those three aspects are something I would like to focus in, on. And uh, of course, I also try to realistically not to repeat the same re uh, program I did um, in the past three years. I try not to repeat uh, most of the repertoire. Sometimes, you know, uh, if audience particularly like certain piece uh, I, then I, I probably would um, keep that as the centerpiece of my recital but most of the time I would like to um, play different repertoire um, and uh, maybe after three or four seasons I uh, bring something back and actually I learn new things every time I revisit those repertoire and I think it's a great thing for me as well. What's currently on your music then these days? I would love to know what you're working on, what kind of performances you are preparing. If you can share with us, I would so curious. I, I just did the Mozart uh, Concerto Number no. Three with the Richmond Symphony as the uh, gala performance at the Menuhin competition. So I just got back, and I also did a world premiere uh, of Mason Bates' Bond Away, which was supposed to be the commission work for the junior competitors, but sadly they could not come and play live for us. So I uh, got to learn it and be a 
quote unquote competitor this year <laughs> and, and to premiere that piece. And uh, I have two recitals coming up, one in Boston, one in Sarasota. And um, so I, I chose those repertoire carefully and I'm currently working on the uh, two sonatas by Mozart and two sonatas by Beethoven plus a suite by Britain. And uh, it's so interesting for me because I think Mozart and Beethoven are two of my favorite composers that I really cannot say like which one is my absolute favorite because I love them equally. <laughs> and, uh, I think I'd it's say always the same. so challenging too. Yeah, 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 exactly. So yeah, those are the things I'm working on. And it's so, so interesting. Like I, I, I'm working on the Spring Sonata, which I've performed so many times that I feel like it's getting harder and harder and harder every time I play it. And uh, I think these are the interesting uh, pieces that I feel like everybody knows it, but I think those are the most challenging part. Just because everybody knows it, then it puts so much pressure on you as you have to play it so well, not like giving the audience an impression that, oh, Spring Sonata again, we've heard that a million times. I, every time I perform somebody, uh, some pieces that everybody knows, uh, I would always want it to bring some fresh air. And um, uh, the best result for me is the audience came to me and was like, wow, I've heard this so many times that this is a performance I would like to remember of them. That's really the biggest compliment to me, yeah. I also find it difficult, you know, the more you play a piece, the harder it gets because you hear more, you're studying it more. It's kind of like evolving with you as a violinist. Is there a piece in particular, um, not in this program that you're working on, but in, in your previous repertoires and previous seasons, is there a piece where you evolves with you from the top of your head? Mm, there are many. I mean, um, uh, again, I would like to bring up Beethoven. His violin concerto is something I feel like uh, it's getting harder and uh, it's so exposed. And I've played that many, many times with different orchestras. And I just feel like no matter how well you prepared or how well you feel like you're prepared, um, it just never really goes the way you want it to, to go. And uh, I remember a famous quote from one of my, um, uh, you know, dear uh, violinists that I really, really admire of, um, who passed away a couple of years ago, um, Masuko Oshioda. And uh, she is uh, a, a late student of um, Joseph Sigati. And uh, she also taught at the New England Conservatory when I was a student there. And we sometimes have casual chats. And I remember one quote that she told me is like, oh, I remember I played this violin concerto about 10 times in a row um, in a month or something like that. So she did it with 10 different orchestras. And you know, the second to last time, it was almost in tune. And she was surprised by it. Oh, wow. <laughs> so that's how hard it is, you know? And so I, I feel exactly the same way, not only just because of the technical difficulty, it has to be perfect, but sadly we're all imperfect human beings. It's just impossible. But also musically, it was so simple. And that is the most challenging part. You know, he's not making a magnificent masterwork by jewelries, by diamonds, by gold, um, but he's just using stones and woods, the, you know, simple elements, the most basic harmony and create something so magnificent. So that is the challenging part. You have to make such magnificent masterpiece 
sounded so simple. Thank you for sharing all that. Wow, that is so great. Um, I would like to actually learn more about your upbringing with the violin. How did you get started? Who were your biggest influences growing up before you started your time in Boston and where you are today? Well, I mean, a lot of factors. I would say I, um, I started the violin out of a coincidence just because, you know, my parents took me to a, a, a music teacher who kind of was teaching everything um, back in Inner Mongolia. That was my hometown. It's in the northern part of China. And uh, back then, there was not so much music going on. There was a lot of folk tunes. So music teacher there tends to teach every bit of uh, everything. <laughs> a violin, piano, guitar, Mongolian horse violin, you know, <laughs> throat singing, a lot of different things. So, you know, um, the first um, choice was piano because he saw my hand, which was big. And he saw, oh, you can be a very good pianist. Um, I was, I think, four and a half or five when I first meet my first teacher. And then my parents saw that big piano, you know, huge thing, you know, uh, must be very expensive. And back then, you know, they don't think they could uh, afford it. And they saw a little violin box sitting on the top of the piano. And they think, oh, maybe we can afford that. It looks much smaller, must be much cheaper. So maybe let's start with the violin. What a mistake, Eric. What a mistake. <laughs> a Stradivari, oh, wow. they, they had no idea how much a Stradivari would cost, right? But then it was such a coincidence. Then, you know, I started playing the violin, but it was not like a serious studying in the first, I would say, eight years, nine years. I would just kind of play it as a hobby. Um, sometimes I pick it up and sometimes I would just leave it there, not touching it for two weeks. It was not serious, but I do like, I, I, I was really, really enthusiastic about listening to recordings, especially when I moved to Shanghai. Uh, I think I was 11 years old. I uh, got into the Shanghai Conservatory, the primary school. Um, uh, it is kind of hard to get in, but I was so lucky to, to have that opportunity to be selected so my family eventually moved to shanghai and uh and i remember i would sit in front of a um you know cassette what do you call that those uh, yeah machines? like, a cassette or a like tape. stereo cassette tape yes so so i would sit in front of that uh, for like eight hours so all my friends my colleagues my classmates were practicing for eight hours so i was the opposite i i would sit there and listen to cds uh, for eight hours i would um, skip lunch and save that money to buy cds and got really hungry before dinner time <laughs> i remember that and but i really like i remember i would uh, compare 10 different recordings by Isaac Perlman. Kianghua Chan, Zuckerman, Heifetz, Chrysler playing Mendelssohn Concerto, just first page, I would just listen to them and compare back to back uh, how they vibrate, how they do their dynamics, and how they use their different bowings and vibrato. It's just so fascinating for me to listen to all those masters recording and um, comparing them. Uh, so that was a huge thing for me when I grew up. So my path was not like other, say, uh, winter uh, kids, you know, they, they practice a lot, got a lot of muscle memory, had brilliant technique, 
at their young age. Just like when I was watching the junior division of the manual competitions uh, right now, like the standard repertoire is uh, Voxman, Carmen Fantasy, you know. I don't think I can even play it right now today. So <laughs> that's just fascinating. That's how violin technique developed in the past decades. So I think that was the probably the biggest factor um, that made me who I am today, which is listening to recordings and instead of practicing too much, which is also important. I uh, I would say I was, a, I'm still a little bit of regret <laughs> that I didn't practice enough when I was little, but I think I also got so much benefits spending so much time listening to older recordings. I particularly like, um, you know, the, the, the old golden age violinists, uh, um, uh, Milstein is my favorite violinist. Of course, of course along yeah. with Yasha Heifetz, Chrysler, Elman, and I think that's something that is missing today. Like uh, my students, especially the younger students, they didn't even know who those people are, and they don't listen to recording just because right now social media is so strong and predominant, and and Instagram and all that stuff. You know, the videos are so short; it's like ten seconds or sixty seconds. So your attention span is it's getting shorter and shorter. Uh, so I think that's probably one of the reasons, but I was so, I'm so lucky and I still get the luxury of sitting there for hours and listening to recordings. Well, that's definitely trained you to, you know, sit for many hours observing different menuin competition recordings. Right. And I would love for <laughs> And I would love for you to talk a little bit about the recent, you know, 2021 menuin competition, which occurred in Richmond, Virginia. I would love your perspective because you are a winner of the menu and competition. And what was it like as a participant? And what was it like as you were part of the jury this time? Well, it was, um, it was so special. And first of all, I was just so lucky to be even invited to be a jury member because, you know, I, I'm, um, I was lucky enough to even be a participant back 11 years ago. Um, I don't know if you know a little bit of that story, the volcano erupted. So I didn't almost missed the competition, but I was so lucky that I got. Remind me from... where that was. When, when, where was the That was in Oslo. In oh, that's Oslo, right. Norway. I, yeah. I do remember that. Yeah. So the volcano in Iceland erupted. So the entire Europe could not have a single flight for two weeks or something. And I was in Iceland at that time when the volcano erupted. I was uh, switching airplanes in Iceland. So I got stuck there and everybody got stuck there. And uh, many people, uh, many uh, contestants uh, in Europe, they would drive or take the ferry and took the train. But I was the only one who got stuck in Iceland. So with many, many help by all kinds of very, very nice people, including the ambassador of Iceland, uh, Norway and China. And they put me in a cockpit uh, with a, and flew with the pilot and arrived uh, Trondheim, which is another wow. city in Oslo. And then when I arrived, the competition, um, the first round already had started. And uh, I was the last to even arrive. And then I just, I remember, I just run directly from the bus stop to the concert hall and uh, not even had a chance to draw the slot because it's not needed. I was the last one for sure. Almost no rehearsals, just play. And I think that video is probably still on YouTube. Uh, I think the first piece I started with the Andante 
by Bach uh, from the second sonata. And uh, I remember I, I, I just had to calm myself down without practicing for a week and just really, really took me so much time to even get myself into the zone. That so, fight or um, flight yeah, that was... must have been really working for you at that point. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, normally you would get so nervous, especially the first round, I would say most contestants uh, were telling me that they got so nervous the first round, but I even had no energy to be nervous because I just felt so lucky and grateful that I could actually just be there and perform. So that was um, quite an experience. And on the other side of the table this year, 11 years after, it was like uh, part of myself is like watching myself competing. It feels like, you know, what I would have done. I keep asking myself when certain competitors play pieces, um, like the commission work I was learning as well. And uh, also many other works that I've done in the past. And like, I keep asking myself, what would I have done? Um, right now or 11 years ago. So I keep asking myself, but it's just so, um, so difficult to, to even watch these amazing young talents just because um, there are 43 competitors. If I can, I would love to give them all first prize. I mean, I'm not saying that just like uh, a cliche or just being nice or something, Eric, because I truly felt this way. Um, music is not sports, uh, you know, you definitely uh, run 9.9 9. 9 seconds is faster than 10 seconds, right? You can you can judge that so easily, but music is all about preference and styles. You know, you may not like this person, you like the other one better, and other people may think completely differently. So I think that's the most challenging part. And, and they all played so wonderfully, and they all have their own individual voice that cannot be judged by the score, you know. So, um, but at, at the end, it is a competition. And the other challenging part of this year's competition is is the virtual part. Because of uh, the pandemic, we had to move everything virtual. And uh, I think that is the most challenging part because everybody is using different equipment. And somebody, they, they use, they play it in a concert hall and somebody, they record that in a studio, somebody probably didn't have the time and uh, uh, and the space, so they had to record some of the runs in their own living room or friends' living that room. That is so fascinating, right? I think that I was know. extremely fascinating that everybody has a different circumstance, um, you know, regarding the, the actual recording of the competition. Um, I also exactly. just want to I just want to kind of circle back real quick, but while it's in my head, but your Iceland story, you know, in the menuing competition, kind of reminds me of you know you know, like the Midori popping a string during the performance kind of situation. Or, you know, even there's a there's a video of Ray Chen, you know, performing and switches the yeah. violin with the concert master, right? I felt like yeah. I felt like that was that kind of situation uh, for you, which was mm -hmm. unbelievable, but it's so fascinating to listen <laughs> to that story. I mean, I, I mean, all the contestants in the menu and competition, thankfully, did not have to experience any travel difficulties, which have made it convenient for them. But um, mm -hmm. No, but what you said about the, the whole competition aspect was fascinating, right? Um, I think the pure um, engagement of the menu in competition and the students actually get, being like a participant of the menu in competition should be an accomplishment in and of itself. 
Yes, I think. yes. I mean, yeah. I, I was like uh, witnessing because there are three rounds. I think I was witnessing like more than 70 um, online recitals in a very short period of time. So that was such a treat, but it's also very challenging. I don't know if you have experienced something like sitting there and watch 40 videos. And, uh, you know, there is a lot of requirement for us as jury members because we are required to only listen to everybody once. Just like when you are listening to a live performance, you cannot go back and listen to it, right? Interesting. You, you have to experiment that. as if, uh, yeah, you have to, you know, uh, treat that as if it's a live performance. And for the contestants as well, they have to, you know, they were asked to play in a certain uh, hour so that you you don't really have a chance to do it 10 times and pick the best one. And you are required to put a clock in front of the screen so that everybody knows that you're not editing the audio. Because right now the technology is so advanced, you can just insert some, you know, write notes and you to can splice kind of something in. The, exactly. Mm -hmm. But with the clock, they're moving you just cannot do that that's and a very interesting time zone that's a very interesting solution to see if the clock exactly. is continuing to move around wow i did not even think of that that's fascinating yeah. so menu and competition they definitely did such a wonderful job and making it as fair as possible for everybody even though it's just impossible right and uh, and i think that also bring up a lot of challenges because in a live performance obviously when somebody is playing a stradivari and then you immediately know that, oh wow that projects so much so, so well in a hall but this year maybe it's a little different you know if you have a nice equipment if you have a nice recording engineer a nice space uh if you just um, happen to be in a you know very friendly hall it's just you know very different and uh, somebody like to put the microphone very close to you so that you know every single note is so clean somebody maybe put it very far away but maybe yeah that cover up some of your little flaws but doesn't really mm -hmm. give you a lot of uh, clarity so you know you have to take that into consideration and i personally have to almost um, guess a little bit uh, by looking at the contact point and the way they use their bow and i have to watch very closely and to kind of guess if this particular player is going to project in a hall so instead of just judged by the pure volume because those are not really real you know you can turn the volume up and down um, easily it's very interesting what you said about you know you actually have to visually see how the the contact point was so there was a an element of you know you know using one of your senses you know the visual is an important factor in this year's competition because not everybody's microphone is going to sound the same you know, one yeah. condenser mic is going to sound, you know, a lot boomier, have more bass, one might have more treble. So that's so fascinating. And I'm so glad that the menu in competition was, you know, really had a high standard and was was very fair. Um, you did speak a little bit about uh, Shadowberry, and I don't know if all, any of the Minuen, uh, Minuen, Minuen competition participants were playing on, you know, Guarneri Del Jesus or Stradivarius, but you play on a Stradivari, and um, I was reading a little bit about your your violin, and it's a golden um, age Strad, and um, approximately for listeners who are beginners or who are not familiar with the golden period of Antonio Stradivari, it's approximately between 1700 and 1725. That's when he was at the peak of his um, luthier making. And I would love for you to talk a bit about your instrument, if you can, um, and how you came across you know playing it. Yeah, my um, 
my primary instruments, I mean, the one you heard in Jordan Hall back, um, you know, eight years ago was a different Stradivarius that I've been using for more than seven years. It was called the Solomon Stradivari and uh, it was made in 1729. So that was a late Stradivari, but beautiful, beautiful violin. And I really, really loved it. And um, I've been using that for seven years. I feel like I almost wanted to sleep with it. <laughs> it's just uh, such a gorgeous violin. And then um, 2019, I got, um, great opportunity um, uh, by the Nippon Foundation. And they would love to offer me the uh, Joachim Stradivari, uh, my current uh, instrument. And uh, it was made in 1715. Um, as you said, it's the golden period Stradivari. And also the historical value of it is really, really remarkable because it was once owned and performed by the one of the greatest Hungarian violinists in the world, uh, Josef Joachim. And uh, uh, you would think that um, one of the, many of these uh, wonderful violin concertos were premiered on this violin by the hand of Josef Joachim, including was, Brahms' violin the, sonata. I was just going to say the sonatas. Uh, was, it concerto? Was, it, was it concerto uh, premiered on that violin uh, as well? Brahms' violin concerto and uh, Bruch violin concerto, I believe, and also the Schumann violin concerto, just to, wow. to name a few. And possibly the, the you know, I, 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 I'm not 100% sure. So when Wieniawski had a heart attack and had to cancel the recital, Joachim had to step in and finish the concert. And in the funeral uh, of Wieniawski, and he had to play the Chacon, I think it's probably on this violin as well. So it, just to hold that piece of art is such a tremendous honor for me. And to live with it on a daily basis is just like a dream. And uh, the two violins, uh, the two Stradivarius that I've been performing on are quite different. The 1729 was more like a um, like a, a lady and also has a dark side but the joachim is more like a gentleman who is more masculine and harder to tame ah, but once you get the golden golden <laughs> spot uh, it's just gorgeous sounding uh, it's like a wild horse that it's so hard to tame but when it's in the right spot it's just unbelievable yeah, I remember when Kirsten Long was on the Violin Podcast, he was speaking a bit about the differences between, we were talking about the differences between like Stradivari violins and Guarneri violins. Mm -hmm. um, and you've had experience with Stradivari and they seem to have like a very beautiful tone, um, clear articulation, just, you know, miles and miles of beautiful tone. You could send that a pianissimo sound to the end of the hall. But the Guarneris, to my ear, are like, you have to tame that beast. And if you don't know how to tame the beast, then you're in trouble. <laughs> Do you feel like yeah, that's yeah, with yeah. this violin, the one different. that you're on right now? Oh, yes, yes. Uh, I mean, it's just so uh, temperamental. It's like many of uh, many great uh, Italian old instruments are like this. It's not like you put your bow down and on automatically sounded good. In fact, it's sure. quite the opposite. I would say that to uh, so many of the great modern instruments I played on, you basically put down your bow and it automatically sounded pretty decent. But the old Italian, you have to really search for the golden cut. And uh, to your opinion about the um, Guarneri del Gesù, 
and Stradivarius. I would agree, but not always. I mean, all, everything has both sides, and also there are exceptions. Of course, so yes, that say, was an um, over just the ones um, in exactly. that episode when I was talking about the ones that I heard that day in that hall in comparison with the Strad and I the Guarneri. It was that that I was see. my observation. So yeah, of course, it would be mm-hmm. um, an overgeneralization to be able to categorize those violence. Mm-hmm. But I would agree with you, actually. I feel the same way in general, because I've witnessed a lot of concerts that we sometimes, I think two years ago, many violinist friends with me, we we played a Brandenburg, sonata, a Brandenburg concerto and also the Vivaldi four violins concerto with Paul Huang, Chad Hoops, and a lot of the dream great team. violinists on the stage. <laughs> yes, and we, we, we play different instruments, obviously. And then, you know, the audience, hear things from another perspective and the reaction was basically like this when you have uh, a Stradivari and you sit in the very back side of the hall you feel like the sound is filling the room it's like you cannot tell where the sound is it could be there it could be here but it's like everywhere and and it's it's like flying all over the place sound is always when you have Exactly, and uh, but it's not like a, it's not like a, a, a cannons like in your face, but the Guarneri del Gesù is like boom. It punches like you right there. I think I felt like I felt right that there. too. I felt that too, and I know that you know you're, you're playing on a Stradivari, but I would I want to geek out for a minute. Would you allow me to geek out with you for a minute? I would love oh, to please. talk about the bow that you use. I would also love for the audience to know what kind of strings you use. Because and okay. if and yeah. if it does have any impact on your playing, your style, your projection, etc. Oh, definitely. And I think this is a, a kind of a very uh, violin nerd stuff. I would like to. I'm all about that. Let's, so, let's do it. <laughs> so, uh, so the bow was very interesting. I'm actually using a bow made by Hill, and it's about hundred years old one of the very fine hills i've ever played so it was interesting because we were talking about the manuing competition so 11 years ago i was still a sophomore student at nec and i obviously didn't have my own bow so i borrowed this from a, uh, the ruining violin shop and uh, they were so generous um, to provide me a couple of choices and so when i pick up this bow i just feel like it, it suddenly became extension of my right arm because i didn't even need to think about anything the weight the balance the bouncing was perfect so i used that bow for the manual competition and i won the gold prize of course and then when i came back i had to return it that was the most painful thing i had to do and then i started saving money and luckily the bow was not very very expensive so i after about three years i was able to buy the bow myself and luckily it was still available and uh normally so that's I, not the I case that ever since. normally exactly. that's not the case for people who are listening for uh, for you know for people who are new to us at the violin podcast that's very rare for that to happen you know a good bow when it's out on the market people are usually on trial and trying it out but you happen to get your hands on it and you claim it as yours so you know, good, that's excellent. <laughs> Maybe it was 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 God's decision decision to keep course, that for me. Of course, a higher power. <laughs> and exactly, so I I was very lucky, and in fact, I've played a number of nice bows, like Tord Picard, in the past, but nothing really felt so close to me as this bow. So it was 
very special bow. And uh, strings, those are very important because many people underestimate the importance of the strings. And the people just think if you have a nice violin, any string will make it sound good. And uh, if you have a modern violin, you know, maybe it tends to like certain strings. For me, every single violin is different. You have to make sure that the string is the best for your violin. Some violin likes a little more tension, some violin like a little looser. And also the way you use your bow, the way uh, you, you know, you know, how much pressure you put on your bow or how much bow speed you would like to use. So that really plays a major role in choosing the strings. So I've been using, well, my starting uh, string 10 years ago was uh, dominant. And then the Peter Infield Pi came and then that was clearly the best choice for me. So I've been using that for almost a decade, almost a decade. And I feel like it's the best for me. I've tried many other strings. They're, they're nice, but not like Pi, Peter Infield, because it gives me so much flexibility to do what I want and also give me all these different layers of colors. And I don't know if you noticed that I would like to push the boundaries. I would like to make the pianissimo like so soft that the, that the audience has to do this in order yes. to hear it. Mm -hmm. And when I play fortissimo, I almost feel like, you know, when I practice, my fiance always told me that uh, she's become deaf because I'm, I'm playing so, so loud, loud. And, and I still wanted to, and I still wanted to, to push it. So that those set of strings give me that possibility. And then this year I started to using the Rondo also by Tomas Dick. Those That is very new. Those are my favorite. The Rondos. Yes. I've, I've, I also went on the similar string journey path as you you know when i was in college mm -hmm. i tried many different from like passione to passione solos to dominance with the gold e i tried the infeld blue the infeld red then and then i kind of graduated to like the peter infeld the pies um he was like adg i think silver d or something and then like a different e string i can't mm -hmm. remember what but i Same. but now i love the rondos for uh, some yes, reason, I mean, there's just like, again, that flexibility that you have, it's not too, it's not, the tension is not too much, but it's not too little. It's just like just enough for you oh, to yes. pull that sound. For me, I'm, I'm so glad that we use the same. And it's very strings. warm. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it doesn't, does not only project well, but it also has this warmth that is a little different from the pie. And of course, uh, same as you, I use different E strings. Uh, I never use the original set. Um, it's not that, that they're not good. It's just, I have my own preference. Uh, I think the, my favorite is the Jager Forte. And uh, also occasionally I, I, I like to use the superior Jager, which is the gold um, label. And uh, I also experienced uh, sometimes if a certain violin has very bright E string, so I will use medium, but mostly of a Jager Forte. Like and a also when e you, exactly, when you have like a very uh, dark violin that doesn't have a lot of top, I even sometimes like to experiment um, Westminster, which is the very, very strong string. That's, that is a uh, very but, strong E yeah. string. That's like, very they, strong. They, they, they just, they, they just 
cut a piece of steel off the factory and they just made it into a <laughs> string, I feel like. Exactly. But the, a lot of people like to use it. I know uh, Pinchas Sukerman like to use it and uh, the Boston Symphony concertmaster Malcolm Lowe likes to use it. It's a nice string. It gives you a lot of ground feeling. And you know how I know that Malcolm Lowe liked that E string? I used to work at a at a violin shop. Probably you are familiar with this violin shop outside, like, um, like a few miles away from Boston. And he came to the shop one time and he requested this E string. And um, I wasn't I wasn't serving him. I was simply just like, you know, he was working with someone in the shop, of course. And uh, it was I saw him pick that E string and I go, hmm, that's a very interesting observation. I shall try it. And you know what? It didn't work for me, but oh, well. <laughs> depends on the piece. I would really say. depends yeah, on the piece. Also, I, when you, yeah. But he was also playing on a Stradivari also. So, um Yes. So, there, <laughs> <That> yeah. <helps. laughs> Before we run out of time, um, I do want to talk about your recent appointment uh, as violinist of the Shanghai Quartet. What an honor it must have been to, you know, get the call and say exactly. we want to, we want to be able to play with you. Talk about that experience and what that audition process is like, because it's not so much an, a traditional orchestral audition when you're trying to feel out a, a chamber music group. So, I was wondering if you could share your thoughts on exactly. that. Exactly. Well, I mean, the audition process was very interesting because um, it was exactly a year ago when they auditioned um, various of candidates. And uh, yeah, it was a year ago in May. And uh, wow, it felt like yesterday. <laughs> and uh, the COVID situation was very severe. And, uh, you know, it was actually fascinating to me that we actually really were, were so brave and took take the, the the next step to actually have a live audition so everybody wearing masks six feet away and we were playing in a big church and uh it was interesting so basically i was asked to play beethoven opus 59 beethoven opus 18 and death and maiden smetna and haydn and uh, grieg and all that repertoire just you know just come and play no no rehearsal just just play just come in and, and uh, sight read coming coming and play and it was really um an experience but luckily that was exactly something i'm so comfortable uh, with because my 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 biggest hobby is um, when i was at nec was to use my free time to read but with my friends <laughs> like having a chamber music reading party and i also grew up playing chamber music i was the probably the only group or one of only two, two groups in the middle school of Shanghai Conservatory who actually took chamber music classes and have my own groups. And I uh, ha, you know, had my own quartet for seven years until I came to the States. And we actually premiered a lot of um, very popular pieces, but it was never played in China. We premiered a lot of um, chamber music works like Woman, Hotman, and uh, um, those pieces in China. So I, I was actually, um, I consider myself a chamber musician. I was never even thought about being a soloist, actually. Interesting. Even when I oh, I came to the states, and I, the reason why I I I, I decided to study with my dear teacher Don Weilerstein was part of the reasons he's the first violinist of the legendary Cleveland Quartet because yes. I also wanted to, you know, someday become somebody like him. You know, a great teacher, a great chamber musician, great soloist. 
great person. And uh, I think that was, you know, that really makes the whole foundation of today. And, uh, you know, of course, with uh, it was so interesting that um, I actually never thought about being a soloist, but it was him, Mr. Widerstein, who actually inspired me um, after one lesson, um, we were kind of chatting and I told him that, um, you know, uh, my dream is to be like you, somebody like you, you know, a great teacher and great chamber musician, have my own quartet. And he was like, oh, that was wonderful. But, um, but maybe you also wanted to try to play some solo because you have such a special sound that I immediately recognized when I first heard you play in you know, the audition. And I think it'll be a pity for us not to hear this kind of sound. And then that really touched me so much. I remember I was almost in tears when somebody like him telling me this. So that was the very year I decided to apply for the menuing competition. Um, one, of, one of the first major competition I, I applied for. And then, you know, somehow, opportunities came and I was lucky enough to get engagements afterwards. And uh, so I started to play solo. And it was so interesting when I first started concertizing as a soloist, most of my, my classmates, colleagues, they already know like 10, 10 plus concertos, you know, but I only know about, I don't know, three or four. I'm not, and I'm not ashamed of that because I've know a lot of other things, a lot of sonatas, chamber music that I may, they've never played. So, you know, it was a fascinating experience. So I actually first learned the Tchaikovsky concerto when I was 26. <laughs> I've never mm. played that before. I first performed the Mendelssohn concerto when I was 25 or 26 also. So popular, right? But I've never performed that. But a lot of pieces that I've just learned for the first time after 25. So that was a very different path and probably would have shocked a lot of people to hear that, right? And, but I think I'd rather do that instead of, um, you know, playing, say, uh, Beethoven concerto when I was nine and play it all wrong and never want to touch it again. So I think yeah, in a way I, I'm grateful. I, I agree. I feel like there's a, there's a level of maturity that goes into the violin playing and you, you've lived a life, mm -hmm. I think. You know, you lived yeah. a life, you understand more, you know, like, music is life right like it's in all aspects of the of, you know that's oversimplification of course but like you know there's so much you can say in beethoven violin concerto without having to speak any words as i'm right. sure you you know you can say right yeah so this is really like a, a foundation for me so i grew up both as a um, chamber musician and a soloist so i think this is to having both in my life is very important so that i can kind of um be comfortable in all regions so i think the one of the main reasons why i decided to uh, apply for the chamber music society um pro of lincoln center chamber music society of lincoln center program uh, in 2017 it's just because you know i've been playing um three full seasons as a soloist and i feel like there's something missing in my life I enjoyed playing different orchestras and traveling around the world and be kind of the spotlight of the stage. And that was great. It was a lot of pressure, but it, was, it feels great. And also it was a huge challenge for me and made me a better player, better person. But part of my life is missing. I feel like I'm just, I just miss chamber music so much. 
that's why I applied for that program. Was so lucky to to get in as one of the member of the Bowers program, and then you know I feel like oh now my life is so complete because I got to play high level chamber music again.、Um, you know last year pandemic hit us very hard, and this opportunity kind of came out of nowhere. And、uh, you know normally a lot of friend of mine they were like not even thinking. That I would even take this opportunity because they thought I didn't have the time, had the energy, or maybe not, I'm not even interested. But only myself know myself better, right? So I I actually felt like this is a once in a lifetime chance for me to fulfill my dream and playing in a world class level、uh, string quartet. So I so I did the audition, and obviously the player were 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 very happy playing. With me, and I also got so inspired by the quartet, and、uh, I felt like I didn't even need to think about anything. I just sit there, and we kind of click immediately. And、uh, so I felt like you know the, the the members of the quartet told me afterwards that they felt like you know after we started first note, they knew that I'm the one. I was the wow. One.、Um, that was perfectly fit. In the quartet, just and, that one、uh, note—it's the feeling.、Oh, of yeah, the, it's a feeling. It's the one, the moment you all touch the string together. That's fantastic. You know immediately. You know, immediately. yeah. I mean, that—that's that's just the, the magic of of chamber music. Just the way you you both, the way you breathe, the way you 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 touch the string, the way you vibrate, that everything you actually know. And we didn't speak a word throughout the whole. And we actually played two hours nonstop. FYI,、wow. we actually played as much as possible. We just go on and on and on and just play, and we didn't speak one word. Just, just play, and I didn't even tell them, "Oh, can we use this bowing?" They didn't tell me where we usually do four take here. No, no, that's it. And we take the repeat in the second time. I did exactly what they did in the first time. Sometimes, you know, I try to match the bowing with the first violin, and the first violin wants to match my bowing, so we actually end up. Backwards again. That, that was a、right. funny moment. That was actually a, a very good thing that we are trying to be such great chamber musician, and, and that was just great. I mean, the whole process was just fascinating, and、uh, for me, it was a dream come true because I always、uh, wanted to be a chamber musician, have、uh, the opportunity to play in a professional group, and in fact, you know, they also encouraged me to you know, keep my my solo engagements if I have the time. And energy and opportunity. So I think this is really, really a great thing for me. And also, my other biggest dream is to be able to teach. And、um, I always, you know, I've I've been teaching since I was, you know, when I was in school, I already started teaching. I was the assistant of Mr. Wallerstein, and then afterwards, I was teaching at the NEC Prep and MIT a little bit. So、um, this is a great thing for me that I got the opportunity to teach、uh, at the Tianjin Juilliard School.、Um, we actually already started working with the students this past semester, and、uh, it was just it, it felt so great because I really、um, love teaching and I like to share my knowledge with my students. And、um, it's just, I think it's in many ways, many dreams came true. This whole, whole process. Everything、and、kind so of I, fell yeah, into place. I truly feel grateful. Exactly. That's wonderful. And 
And uh, before I, before I let you go, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to, you know, oh, speak no, with me and share with our audience, everything. Um, you know, you said you were a teacher and um, a lot of us, a lot of people are graduating this year, right? A lot of kids are graduating. They have conservatory degrees or music school degrees, and then they're asking, now what? Right. Hmm. Could you offer a few words of wisdom from your perspective as a faculty member of the Tianjin, Juilliard and Montclair University? What do you think is next? What, what do you what kind of advice could you give the audience? Well, um, first of all, I think I'm, uh, I, I've, I've talked to a lot of students of mine. And everybody knows what they want to do in the future. You know, their circumstance might be very different. The reality might be cruel sometimes. But I'm so glad that everybody I know that are graduating or just entered the university, they know what kind of musician they want to be. Some Someone just wants to be a soloist. Someone really loves playing in an orchestra. Someone wants to teach someone treat music as their hobby and they wanted to be an engineer and uh that's all great because they know what they want to do so that's i think the most important thing for me once you know what kind of musician or what kind of person you wanted to be that's i think a great start but also as you mentioned you know after graduating now what because there's just certain number of openings in orchestra and there's just that many quartets or teaching jobs out there. Um, and also, I also went through a, uh, a period um, when, my when I graduated from school or like the year before my graduation. I tried different things. Not every time it worked out. I tried different auditions. I tried some, you know, open uh, competitions. I, I did not advance every time. I actually sometimes even didn't pass the, the first round, the, the videotape round was normal for me. And I'm not ashamed to share that because it's part of life. So I experienced that as well. But I keep reminding myself, this is just to prepare for the next step. Something better, something bigger is coming. So this is just part, part of the process. Because so I keep reminding myself. And then, of course, finally, It'll, it'll come, your dream will come true. And I think also the other thing is to believe in yourself. Um, I, I know, I, again, it sounds like a cliche, but I wanted to make sure I say that clearly, believe in yourself. Don't change the way you play. Don't change the way you um, look at music. You know, uh, sometimes I would see students came to me and say, oh, so who and who is the judge of this competition I'm applying for and he likes to um have, he, he likes to play loud so should i play louder something like this you know don't do that because um there's so many uh, roles all roads lead to rome i would say so it, there's so many different ways to be successful so don't change the way you play just because so and so tends to like that and you can never predict the future i think i uh as a jury member or as a teacher, I always look at each individual uh, differently. You know, I'm more looking at, are you believing 
in the in, in things that you are, are doing you know are you doing the phrase you want it to be are you making the sound that you would like it to sound like so i think this those are the most important thing um, because when you try to imitate somebody or you're trying to be somebody else we can hear that we can see that that is not that you're not being yourself it was so obvious it, it's something you cannot hide you know uh, after a while we we realized so make sure that you really believe in yourself and be the best person of yourself not somebody else and stay original people stay original exactly angelo i've taken too much of your time thanks again so much um you can learn more about <laughs> angelo um, at angeloviolin.com i'll leave links in the the podcast notes but down below and if you enjoyed this episode of the violin podcast please make sure to hit the subscribe button that way you get notified for when new episodes come out it also helps out the episode to provide more episodes for you um angelo thanks for your time and um, i hope to keep in touch and stay in touch My pleasure. thank you yes please do <laughs>